This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. At the end of March, the authorities in Russia arrested Evan Gershkovich, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. For the first time in nearly 40 years, Russian authorities have arrested an American journalist and charged him with espionage. More than a month after his arrest, he remains in a prison cell in Moscow, waiting to learn his fate. In response, the Wall Street Journal said it vehemently denies the allegations from the FSB and seeks the immediate release of our trusted and dedicated reporter. In a speech last Saturday at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner, President Joe Biden addressed the parents of Evan Gushkovich, who were there in the room. Everyone in this hall stands with you. We're working every day to secure his release. Biden promised that he's working like hell to bring home the journalist and others detained in Russia. But what does that work entail? What can the White House realistically do to convince Russia to release Evan Gushkovich when relations between the two global powers are so fraught? I'm Jonathan Friedland and this is Politics Weekly America. It costs 20 rubles per page to write to my best friend, 65 for the envelope, 75 more so he has the option to reply. Last month, we were chatting on a beach. Now it's letters to Lefortova prison and a quiet prayer that he will receive them soon. Paulina Ivanova is a foreign correspondent for the Financial Times covering Russia and Ukraine. Last week, she wrote a quite beautiful piece for the FT called Letters to Evan Gushkovich, My Friend, in a Moscow jail. Evan Gershkovich, an American journalist for the Wall Street Journal, was arrested in Russia on March 29th and placed in a Moscow jail. I could write that sentence 100 times and it would not seem any less absurd. Evan has been taken hostage by the Russian state. Espionage. That is the excuse it gives for sending a group of plainclothes thugs to grab our funny friend and push him hooded into a car. That is the reason why he's now forced to sit in a cell, trapped, alone, and waiting. Paulina, you wrote those words uh, in your newspaper in the Financial Times, and you describe Evan Gushkovich as your best friend. Tell us when you first met him and how you met him. We first met, um, I think, around the beginning of 2018. We had arrived a few months earlier, both of us, to Russia to take up our first sort of first reporting jobs on the ground, our first foreign correspondent jobs. Evan coming from the US and myself coming from the UK. Both of us had a connection to Russia, family connections to Russia. We'd grown up speaking the language at home. 
And we met reporting, effectively. It's a small and tight-knit community of foreign correspondents in Moscow, especially ones working in the English language. And we are very quickly covering the same stories, you know, uh, kind of learning the ropes of journalism together at the same time with two other friends who were also starting out as foreign correspondents there. And it was a difficult but also kind of exhilarating time I mean it's a very hard place to work it was already a very hard place to work at the time but also very exciting and interesting and we were both learning about Russia learning about our own identities also learning how to do the job of journalism in this environment and that kind of brought us together I think. And just say something about identities, because you mentioned that you both grew up with Russian as the language at home. That means, and I'm not sure everyone knows this about Evan, but his family is Russian. His family comes from the Soviet Union. So his father actually comes from Odessa in Ukraine. And his mother comes from St. Petersburg, um, Leningrad at the time, and also with heritage in East Ukraine. So it's a Soviet Jewish family, and they left in 1979, and they actually met in the United States already. Evan was born in New York and then grew up in in New Jersey, uh, did his education there, began his career in journalism there, um, and actually had this establishment job at the New York Times, you know, foot in the door kind of young career job at the New York Times Uh, which is already very, very difficult to get, but left that in order to move to Russia, in order to pursue his dream, basically. And it was quite a big risk to take. And then uh, he was working at the Moscow Times, a local paper in in Moscow. And just give us a sense, as your piece in the FT does, of of what he's like. We've You mentioned in that piece his talent and love for cooking. We know that he's a fan, like me, of Arsenal Football Club. There were some fans that Arsenal held up banners demanding his release. But just give us a flavour of the person as well as the figure who's now in the news. Sure. I mean, yes, you're absolutely right about Arsenal and football is a big part of Evan's life. Um, Evan's super funny, a very charming and open person who is able to talk to almost anyone who finds a common language with anybody that he meets, part of our kind of letter writing campaign, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, There are people translating letters in Riga, in the US, in Tokyo. You know, he's really someone who makes friends everywhere he goes and really leaves a lasting impression. I was struck by the observation that I drew from it was that he's somebody who really takes what he does very, very seriously. His choice of holiday reading, of beach reading when you were on a recent vacation together. I mean, it's not what everyone would choose to read when they're on holiday, but I think it says something about how committed he is to telling the Russia story. You tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, That's exactly the case. Um, Evan had taken with him this massive copy of Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman, um, a Ukrainian-born writer who was was writing about um, the Second World War. And Evan was talking about how he had chosen the book because he felt that it would help him understand the conflict better if he was reading this novel, which is really sort of uh, has a lot of granular detail about the uh, Second World War on the Eastern Front. Uh, I had a lot of respect for this because I uh, was trying to switch off from the fact that we had to cover this conflict all the time and all the kind of horror that we have to sort of absorb in our day jobs. So on our first break from that, I was hoping to switch off, but he was obviously still in the mindset, still working. And I think this has been also on show in the books that he's requested us to send him to 
uh, Le Fort of a Prison Since His Detention, which are all, you know, either classics of Russian literature or kind of these dystopian political novels set in Moscow by Russian writers. Really goes to show that he's still seeing his, you know, he's still sort of thinking about everything and processing everything that's happening to him with this kind of journalistic lens. Let's get to the circumstances that led to his arrest and now imprisonment. You report now on Russia from Berlin, and you, like a lot of foreign reporters, and in fact some Russian journalists too, left after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Evan Gershkovich also initially left, but then a few months later, sort of against the current, returned to Russia. Can, what can you tell us about why he returned? Because it does seem, you know, brave, but also puzzling. So a lot of journalists left after the start of the invasion. That's true. Specifically, a lot of Russian national correspondents left, Russian passport holders. Since Russia invaded Ukraine last year, Moscow has continued its clampdown on independent media within its borders. Many Russian journalists fled rather than risk imprisonment for not towing the government's line. The laws changed, which basically placed Russian national correspondents uh, in a lot of danger um, and at, at risk of breaking the law just by reporting honestly on, on the war. Evan returned in the summer of 2022 on his first reporting assignment to Russia and foreign correspondents were increasingly also towards the autumn starting to return. I also returned on several reporting trips This because there was an understanding that there was a difference between reporting that was being done in the Russian language by Russian reporters and foreign correspondents who were being regularly re-accredited by the Russian Foreign Ministry over the course of the past year, granted press visas, and who were working openly and with the full consent of the and approval of the Russian state. So there wasn't a belief that for the time that we are able to still work, we should, and we have a duty to keep working. And Evan felt that more than anybody, I think, and was going back regularly and doing really, really important work. And we could we could see that it was essential because it was just so unique. There was so little reporting being done on the ground in Russia. And it really helps nobody if Russia is this black box um, at a time when it sees itself as being in conflict with uh, a large part of the world. Yeah, no, I, the, the indispensability of it, very, very clear, but as you say, carries with it huge risks. And he was very alive to those risks. Uh, even last summer, um, tweeted, reporting on Russia is now also a regular practice of watching people you know get locked away for years. I mean, obviously, that reads very differently now that he is himself uh, in a prison cell. Tell us about when you heard that he'd been arrested and, and in a way what went through your mind when you heard that? We first realized that he had disappeared actually um, before we heard that he was arrested as in our conversations are very regular. We talk all the time especially with our other friends including um, a colleague of yours at The Guardian, Piotr Sauer and Piotr in fact called me and said you know we're not where's Evan? We're, we're not hearing from Evan and that was a very stressful and difficult evening because we only found out the next day that there were rumors of his uh, detention by the FSB and then there was confirmation of his detention by the FSB. But that evening when when someone is just absent was obviously very frightening. And um, in some ways, dark as it is to say, um, the next day when I heard about his detention, it was almost a slight degree of relief, but obviously shock and 
realization of how long this would probably take was uh, the worst part of that. Now, the official reason that the Russian authorities, the FSB who arrested him, are giving for this arrest, the charges that face him are espionage. And the Federal Security Service, or FSB, accused him of, quote, acting on instructions from the American side to collect information about the activities of one of the enterprises of the Russian military-industrial complex that constitutes a state secret. The Wall Street Journal immediately uh, denied those accusations and have demanded his release. I mean, you're in touch with him, as you've been telling us through those letters that you're sending him. How has he been able to respond to these charges to defend himself? I mean, it's obviously not a legal system in the way that you or I would recognise it. But is he able, has he been able to sort of make any kind of case for his defence? I mean, he's denied the charges, as we know from a state media report. But the, I have to say that because it is an espionage case and because the legal system is, as you say, a very different one, to put it lightly, to what we understand as a judicial system, especially in cases like this, it's a closed court. So we really don't know what he's being accused of beyond the espionage charge. We've seen that he is standing tall and dignified and really representing everybody and representing the idea of a free press in Russia and the right to that. Um And standing tall in this bizarre glass box. Yeah, aquarium, we call it, yeah. I mean, that itself, what, what, it's very shocking to see it because he's confined as as if he's some huge physical threat that they can't even allow him to be, you know, breathe the same air as everyone in the same, in in that room. What's your thinking, you know the country well, of why they're doing that? There's some sort of signal they're sending with that image, don't you think? If it's a signal, I mean, it's it's a it's it's a way to represent um, him as this quote unquote spy um, to, I guess, a Russian domestic public, perhaps. But it's also common practice. I mean, we do see people in these circumstances. You're probably very familiar with images, also of Brittany Griner, the female basketball yes. player surrounded by FSB officers with uh, their faces in balaclavas, obviously is quite a threatening image and intended to show that, um, you know, this guy who is a young journalist who was doing a wonderful job of covering the country with nuance and wisdom and and uh, sensitivity is in some some sort of threat that needs to be surrounded by men in balaclavas, which is obviously very sad to see. Yeah, no, and obviously a very uh, an image designed to intimidate perhaps him, but also other people, uh, uh, you know, who see it. Absolutely, there is the view outside um, that this is, and I think you nodded to it before that this is really, you know, forget the charges; they're obviously trumped up and bogus. That he's essentially a hostage and being used as a pawn, as a sort of trading bargaining chip for a future prisoner swap uh, with the. Americans and that the trigger for that or the prompt for that might have been you referred to her Brittany Griner the basketball player WNBA star Brittany Griner on her way home to the U.S. tonight freed from Russia in a prisoner swap for a Russian arms dealer convicted here in the U.S. known as the merchant of death Griner was arrested in February days before Russia invaded Ukraine and tonight nearly 10 months later she is now free whose release was brought about by yes another swap and that therefore the Russians thought, well, this can work. How much is that your view of what's going on here? 
we see this hostage diplomacy trend, right? We see that, um, you know, Russia isn't the only country doing it, but we have seen uh, Trevor Reed, a former U.S. Marine who was um, taken by Russia and then exchanged in a prison exchange, then Brittany Griner, and now Evan Gershkovich has been taken. You know, it's there it does seem to be a pattern here. It's hard to not notice it. And if I'm not mistaken, more Americans have been detained by foreign governments in recent years than by, say, criminal gangs or terrorism groups. So there is globally this trend towards taking hostages in order to get something in return. And we've seen Lavrov, uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, also his deputy, Ribkov, mentioning prisoner swaps quite openly in relation to Evan's case. So it seems that that is something that is on their minds as well. So let's say that is the plan. What is the immediate timeline. I think the FSB, the security agency, said initially that they were planning on keeping him only until uh, the end of the month. Do we think that's possible, um, that that's how it's going to work out? Do you expect his release fairly soon, or is it, are you worried that it's not on that timeline? Honestly, I, I, it's very hard to say. Obviously, we hope that it's sooner rather than later, but um, experience shows that it does take a long time and very much not expecting any positive <laughs> news this month, uh, I fear. Um, usually uh, the timeline works as follows. So a case uh, is opened and the first session of the trial um, in Evan's case will be held at the end of this month. So I think it's on the uh, the first hearing is around the 28th or the 29th of May. We've already seen him in court, but that was an appeal by his lawyers against the terms of his pretrial detention. So the fact that he is being held in this, you know, highly isolated Lefort of a prison in uh, Moscow, uh, rather than, say, house arrest or some other form of detention. So they were appealing that. That appeal was rejected, but that's why we saw him in court. But actually, his trial is only due to begin at the end of this month. And how long it takes, we don't know. It has in Brittany Griner's case, there were a few hearings and it was a very quick turnaround. In Paul Whelan's case, it was a much, much, much longer process. If there is a conviction, which there is likely to be, he may be relocated to a penal colony elsewhere. We don't really know yet. Um, that's another stage. But the thing that we have seen traditionally is that Russia does not begin hostage negotiations until sorry, prisoner exchanges and I guess hostage negotiations, yes, is correct, until a conviction is in place. So the sooner that happens, the better. So that's paradoxical in a way, the sooner he is convicted of these charges, which you and the Wall Street Journal, everyone insists are bogus and trumped up, the better. I mean, you mentioned the case of Paul Whelan. That is in some ways grounds for pessimism, I suppose, because he, we should explain, is a, a Michigan uh, corporate security executive who was, has been jail, in jail since December 2018 and wasn't released when Brittany Griner was. And that apparently seems to be because the Russians view espionage charges differently from the kind of charges that Brittany Griner faced, which I think were on a drugs uh, charge. Given that it's an espionage charge being levelled against your friend and colleague, does that cause some worry on on the on the part of you, his family, his supporters? That actually maybe it won't be, you know, even as relatively smooth as and when it wasn't smooth as the release of Brittany Griner. It does, and it is worrying. Of course, it's a much harder case. It's a much tougher case when it's espionage charges, and it's also very difficult for 
his family, for his parents, and also for friends and colleagues, the fact that it is a close trial. And we will know so little about what is happening in that process um, throughout everything will be closed off, including, you know, his own lawyers will not be able to communicate very much at all to anybody about what um, is happening in the case. So it, it does make it much more difficult. But it does mean also that if Lavrov is talking about a prisoner swap, then they will be eyeing someone who they will consider of equal status in other countries. So we just can only hope they have someone specific in mind. So while this is going on, you, family, friends are doing th- interviews like this one, uh, you know, keeping awareness of his case high, making sure that his story remains in the news. And, you know, we're glad to be part of that effort. Uh, but just in terms of the politics of this, this fits in with the relationship between Washington and Moscow. This is part of that. And you know, what can you tell us about efforts that you know of that the White House, Joe Biden's administration is making uh, to be in touch with the Kremlin about this case? Are there back channels? Are there conversations, you know, putting on your hat as reporter? What do you know about that? A lot of that happens behind closed doors. And for, I think, good reason, a lot of those negotiations, I think even afterwards, you will find if you look back at reports on, you know, the negotiations around Brittany Griner and other negotiations that have been successful, a lot of that still doesn't come out into the public. So there are channels of communication we know historically because it, they have worked to be able to to free people, but we will not really be told very much about what is happening. We can see that the US is working very quickly because we see how quickly Evan was designated wrongfully detained, which is a new designation that was actually created in response to this kind of hostage diplomacy trend in order to create a kind of bureaucratic machine within Washington that would uh, speed up the process and kind of focus attentions on getting Americans home. So there is a now a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs who immediately kicks into, you know, his office immediately kicks into gear once this uh, wrongfully detained designation is uh, received. And Evan received it very quickly. And that was very heartening to see. We're seeing some sort of movement um, related to other cases, which may or may not be linked to Evan. We have no idea. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's guessing. Yeah, it's a case of it's a guessing game. It is a guessing game because the signals are sort of contradictory. Because on the one hand, there was quite a lot of commentary after the prisoner swap that led to Brittany Griner being released that, you know, people thought, OK, despite what's going on with Ukraine and this diplomatic conflict between the United States and Russia over that, that maybe there is some kind of easing of tension if they're able to work out a prisoner swap like that. On the other hand, you know, the Russian foreign ministry rejected a request from the US for a consular visit for Evan Gushkovich. They said that, you know, it was in retaliation for um, uh, the United States refusing to grant visas to Russian journalists who had planned to accompany the foreign minister, Russian foreign minister, on a trip to the UN, as if, you know, we're back into tit for tat um, Mm. exchanges between the sides. So, I mean, often these things, there's the outer appearance of you know, hostility or movement. And then there's what's going on behind the scenes. In this case, as I say, we've got contradictory signals. What's your read of of the state of the relationship in reality? 
I feel that the state of the relationship in reality is very bad. Evan is the first uh, foreign reporter to be detained in Russia since the Cold War. And I think that is significant. We also saw a Bloomberg report that said, you know, citing its uh, sources that Evan's detention was uh, agreed upon from the from the very top of the Kremlin, i.e. Vladimir Putin. So in some ways, it seems like an escalation in a poor relationship. I mean, we focused on Evan Kushkovich, your friend, colleague, as an American in, the, in what we've been talking about now. But obviously, he's also a journalist. And this arrest fits in a wider pattern of Vladimir Putin and his war on journalists and on the press. I mean, Evan himself was aware of it. We talked about it, him noticing how colleagues of his were getting locked away. As you and I speak, it is uh, the week of World Press Freedom Day. Uh, to what extent do you think, especially if it did go all the way to the top and it was Putin himself who approved this arrest, to what extent was this maybe not about his relationship with the United States, but rather sending yet another signal to journalists that, you know, you're not going to be able to tell the truth about the war in Ukraine and to de- I'm going to deter you from doing so? That has obviously been a trend as well um, and a very significant one since the start of the war. As I mentioned, hundreds of Russian reporters were forced to flee the country and most uh, independent outlets uh, were closed down. A lot of our friends, Evan's friends, have been labeled foreign agents and now have relocated abroad and are doing a fantastic job of maintaining kind of investigative journalism on Russia, in Russian, uh, from abroad very important work. The people who were able to continue working were largely foreign correspondents. And obviously, this has a chilling effect. Of course, the environment is getting more and more and more difficult, kind of in line with how the war is going for Russia. You know, we see these sort of crackdowns coincide with the worsening of the situation for Russia on the front line. So um, it's becoming more and more difficult and more and more dangerous. When we began, we heard from you talking about the way you stay in touch with Evan via these letters that you send. And you spelled it out when you, when you, when you wrote about this, this weirdly digitised ways that you're able to send things, get things to him. Just tell us something about that, just because I think it's, it's very unexpected. And then perhaps you can tell us about your effort to get people other than you to write letters to him and and perhaps for people listening to this, how they can help. Packages are delivered either in in person to Lefortova through a specific room, but there's also a digital system which you can log on to, which is run by the Russian prison service. It is strangely digitized. You can go in there and search for what books they have available and post them to Evan um, if you are a Russian national with Russian bank cards and phone numbers and that kind of thing, that there are these restrictions, of course. And we can subscribe him to magazines. We've uh, subscribed him to Russian press. I mean, it has to be, again... Approved. Yes, what is approved by the prison system. (laughs) We can't... (laughs) don't have free reign over that, unfortunately, but we have... um, you know, sent him Russian newspapers that he'll be receiving and we're able to get books to him. And we've also obviously been able to get letters to him. We started writing ourselves, but then we quickly called on others to write to him too. And we have had 
honestly, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. We've got almost 2,000 different people, right, so far from all around the world. And that's just to us, but the Wall Street Journal has also started collecting letters. So really, there's so much support, which is amazing. And some of the letters are wonderful. They come, for example, from Moscow correspondents who worked in, I don't know, the 70s or the 80s in Russia and describing some stories from their reporting and their past. And we just know that Evan will love reading that. I'm sure. And just say in a word how, we'll put this in the show notes too for this episode, but just tell people listening to this how they can send a letter if, they, if they're keen to. You just send them to our Gmail inbox. It's freegrishkovich at gmail.com. So free and then Evan's surname at gmail.com as one word. We then translate those. We have our kind of friends, Evan's friends, translating those into Russian as required by law. And then we print and post them in Moscow. And we know that they are reaching him. Evan is replying whenever he's able to. It's not um, very easy for him to do, but he is replying. And in his first letter back to us, he wrote about how important it was for him to start receiving these letters basically as soon as he as soon as he got there and as soon as they started reaching him. It was just such a amazing thing for him to get. He said it was a next level happiness. Paulina Ivanova, thank you so much for talking to me about all of this on Politics Weekly America. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And that is all from me for this week. Before we go, another reminder to subscribe to The Guardian's podcast series, Cotton Capital, which is looking at The Guardian's links to transatlantic slavery. Episode 5 sees Cotton Capital special correspondent Lanre Bakare examining black Mancunian history, beginning with the 1945 Pan-African Congress, which took place in the city and shaped independence movements across Africa. Just search for Cotton Capital wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.